Pretty Mental is about accepting our full selves and inspiring others to do the same by being daringly unfiltered. This means completely normalizing all things mental health and the wild journey that has brought us here. We are challenging the stigmatization of normal human suffering, and we are done pretending and subscribing to the notion that it is taboo to have challenging mental health experiences. Welcome to the Pretty Mental Health Club, and enjoy the show. Hey, Valentina. Hey, Paula. And hello, everybody. And welcome to another episode of Pretty Mental. For this podcast, Paula and I sat down with Brenda Marie Davies, who is an amazing human, an amazing spirit. She's the creator of the popular YouTube channel God is Gray. Brenda is a sex-positive, free-thinking Christian in this modern world. And this was a fun podcast because it was actually our first recorded podcast brenda is in la and we are in atlanta and she made time amongst her busy schedule with filming for god is gray as well as her newborn baby semi semi newborn valentine and this conversation was a special one because we spoke about religious-based sexual trauma for women for men for the lgbtqia community and we talked about the impact of all of that on our mental health. This is a very important conversation because we can't deny the impact that religion has had on our society and thus our psyches. So it was really important for us to explore the connection between religion, purity culture, and mental health. And to be specific, we mainly spoke about Christianity and Catholicism because those are the ones that we have personally experienced. So as you get ready to join us in this conversation by listening in on the podcast, we just want to invite you to come fully into the present moment with us by taking in a deep breath wherever you are, just breathing in deeply and grounding yourself in this moment to come back into the space and be fully present for this. So press play and enjoy. So we wanted to bring you on to bridge together this conversation on sexual purity and religion and mental health because yeah, they definitely <laughs> intersect. They completely <laughs> intersect. And yeah. you talk about this in your, um, in your videos and in your podcasts all the time. So, I mean, it's a natural fit. Yeah, for sure. And I like hope you, yeah. You can lead the way if I misspeak or whatever, because mental health is definitely not my expertise at all. But I do, you know, I, I feel like I make like educated guesses on how things stemmed from other things. And I've read a few books on purity culture and it's resulted in like religious trauma syndrome is what they're calling it. So like I have a baseline education on it, but I'm just saying I'm yeah. not an expertise uh, or expert on mental health at all. And we're definitely not experts on religion on religion <laughs> yeah, there you go <laughs> impurity we know what we've experienced from it yeah and we know our religion religious trauma yeah oh, okay yeah i mean, yeah. I, mean oh, yeah, totally. to know, I don't know anything about it and a little bit of um the way yeah but we'll get into it um okay. we wanted to start out with hearing your journey so how you got into where you are because i know it 
Um, Paula doesn't know it and our listeners don't know it. And I think it's, she knows some of it from your videos, obviously, and like what I've told her, but I want you to give our listeners your, yeah, your story. Cause I think it's super, super interesting. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. God. Okay. Where do I begin? So basically I was what I always called a casual Catholic. We would go on very occasional, probably guilty Sundays and then holidays. And my dad was really my theology teacher. I always really, really resonated with the concept of God. Jesus always resonated with me. So my dad left himself as this open space. He had an office in our house and I would go in late at night and talk to him about the Bible and ask him about different stories in it. And those are really beautiful memories. Like I love those moments with my dad and he's an excellent father and man, but he definitely imparted some teachings that I now understand to be really detrimental, like patriarchal ideas and, you know, the classic stuff that can mess you up biblically. Um, But he was really just coming from the place where he was raised and just imparting that information to me. And it was more positive than negative, I would say, because even if the Bible presented itself as patriarchal, he never told me as his daughter that I had to sit down or shut up or dress a certain way. So it didn't really manifest in any negative ways in my household. Um, So it wasn't until I was 12 years old that I went to an evangelical born-again Christian church. And this is truly when everything went bananas and I suffered a lot of trauma in the hands of that denomination. Um, So basically... I really wanted to go because there would be cute boys there. And I was a nerd in high school and no boys were talking to me. I didn't have my first kiss yet. And I was just like loving the church environment because it was a group of people that had to be nice to you. Like all these like hot teenage boys were like, hi, Brenda, so glad you're here. And I was like, this is the opposite of high school. I love this, you know? So it was just this like really pure, fun, like prepubescent moment and then it's crazy because I was also drawn to it because it was the first place I'd ever heard sex addressed in public. And obviously I was about to enter puberty. So that was fascinating. And that was very much on my mind anyway. And I, at the, like, at the time, believed I was receiving a sexual ethic that was straight from the mouth of God. And that was no sex until marriage. And if you masturbate, God will cry is something I was told, which is so bizarre to me now to even think like you're implying that God has a physical body and that he's crying if I'm masturbating. But um, they, I, I keep giving them credit for everything that they said in that I know they were coming from a pure place at the time. Looking back, the pastor that I had, he was so sweet and kind and genuine and he was like 24 years old. And then the next church I went to, my youth pastors were 24 and 26 years old. So I was looking at them as the ultimate supreme leaders, the the people that would give me divine revelations directly from God. And really, I look back and I'm like, wow, these are just like the blind leading the blind, (laughs) you know? Um, And it was also just coming from a pure place in that My mom, for example, when I asked her why she allowed me to put on a purity ring and and save myself for marriage and just fall into this, um, her explanation was that she had suffered so much pain in the hands of 
the sexual revolution that she came from, that promiscuity and the opposite side of things had really brought a lot of trauma and pain to her. Mm. And her seeing me go in the opposite direction and embrace the exact opposite thing, she was like, oh, good. She'll be saved from all the trauma and pain that I would. And she could have never predicted. And honestly, the evangelical church as a whole probably could have never predicted the trauma that would result from it. That is just as grave and just as heavy as any trauma resulting from promiscuity, for example. Um, and just a side note, I don't like shit on like promiscuity. <laughs> like I'm not saying you can't live your life or be a sexual being, but I do think there are painful aspects to, pur uh, to purity culture and to hookup culture. Like I think both of them are a disaster for completely different reasons. So um, I was trying to save myself for marriage and I had started masturbating when I was five or maybe three from what I can remember. That said, I was a very sexual person and saving myself from marriage was very, very difficult. It wasn't a walk in the park. And the only saving grace I had really was that I was such a nerd and I wasn't like dating guys. I wasn't in quote tempting situations, rolling around in bed with people. I was just a virginal, perfect Christian girl. And I felt amazing about that for a period of time. But then when I was about 20, I was just being overwhelmed with desire, just pure animalistic sexual desire. I was really losing my mind under that repression. And I kept trying to figure out why I was being taught these things. I was like scouring the Bible for verses and I was finding that King David had 12 wives and concubines. Solomon had hundreds of wives and maybe thousands of concubines. And I was like, wait, where is this sexual ethic coming from that I have to save myself from marriage if all these men in the Bible are just doing whatever they want? Long story short, I felt that I had justified sleeping with somebody. And I tried to have a one night stand because I really just wanted to get rid of my virginity as I was calling it. Nowadays, I reject the word virginity and I don't use that language anymore. But at the time, that's what I was saying I was doing. So I just slept with the first dude that presented himself in that way. And we never even kissed. There was no foreplay. It was, I was just like, get a condom. Let's do this. And afterwards, I walked away from it and I didn't feel as differently as I thought I would. I didn't feel like a horrible person or an impure person like I'd been told. And I was like, I wonder if this is going to start like a sexual journey in my life. Like I kind of just wanted to just have relationships like a quote, normal person. Um, but this man really pursued me. I mean, I would hesitate to even call him a man. He were like 22 and 23 years old at the time. Um, but he was pursuing me really hard. And I thought in my warped evangelical brain that he was pursuing me because God was offering me redemption because I ended up feeling so guilty in the aftermath of it that I felt like God was like, well, I, I thought maybe God sent me the man that I was going to marry because he knew I was going to mess up in this way. So I could just like redeem this sin by marrying him after all, which is a horrible, horrible reason to get married. <laughs> so I remember even in that moment walking down the aisle and feeling so much anxiety and 
if I had known what I, if, if I've been given permission to think for myself and to into it and trust that I could hear from God on my own, I would have known what I was doing was totally wrong. But at the time, purity culture was really what was making me walk down this aisle. So two and a half years into our marriage, he admits that he had been cheating on me when we were dating. And this is what I call my like pendulum concept, which is that I realized in retrospect that I was on one side of the pendulum trying to be so perfect, trying to hold up all of these standards of sexuality. And when that breaks, and for me, that break was finding out my husband cheated on me. It doesn't just like calmly center and you have this like beautiful sexual ethic and you can manage your emotions. Like you're going to go in the far opposite direction. And to me, that was extreme promiscuity. And again, I don't fault anyone for doing that or judge anyone for doing that. But I would have to admit that different situations cause me pain for different reasons. And I can see that now. And I would help other people to not fall into those same pit holes that I did. But it was really beautiful journey because it led me to where I am today, which is I finally, like at the culmination of being really promiscuous, I was in the most abusive, toxic relationship of my whole life. And by this time, I'm like 30. So I'm not a little kid. I'm like a grown-ass woman, but I am in pain. I am in this terrible relationship. And this guy is controlling my every move. And he ended up finally like getting physical with me. And I was so grateful for that. at the end of the day, because it really gave me permission. I was like, oh, that's the line. That's a symbol that I'm finally, I know I'm in an abusive relationship now because it's physical. And um, when I walked away from that relationship, I suddenly like realized that I wanted to fix my sexual ethic, that I wanted to live differently, that I wanted to invite true love into my life and edifying really good relationships into my life. And that I had no idea how to do that anymore. And um, I really realized I compartmentalized myself. I was a sexual being over here and a spiritual being over there. And those were two different things. And now I realize those things always need to be aligned. Your mind, body, soul, everything has to be in perfect alignment for you to be your healthiest, best self. And especially when you put your sexuality elsewhere, it can get so dark and so dirty. And, you know, it reminds me of this Bible verse where it just says, everything done in the dark will be brought into light. And that's the way I see these things that profoundly hurt us. It's like we're doing them in the dark. And that's what my sex life was for me. So the journey I've been on since then and having God is gray is working to realign those two things. And I truly believe that realignment invited the man that I'm with into my life and, and true love into my life. So that's the story. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Oh my goodness. Oh my God. There's so much to chew on in there. That's beautiful. Yeah. There's, there's so much to unpack there. Yeah. There's so many places just listening to your story where it resonates for me and my story. Even what you brought up at the end of how important it is to bring our sexuality and our spirituality in our own intuitive ethics together. Mm -hmm. And what you were speaking to uh, growing up in in the church, right? And in what you're saying that all those messages were coming from a pure place at the time. Everybody was doing the best they can. But as we receive all of this messaging, 
we start to compartmentalize Mm -hmm. our sexuality and put it into the category of bad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, because your flesh is evil. Your heart is deceitful above all things. So the church in this purity message actually tells you to separate your body from your like your your spirit from your intuition and from your physical body. Your physical body is this like disgusting flesh machine that you have to deal with that's always battling you to make you do the wrong thing. And your heart is deceitful. You can't trust anything it says. It's always leading you astray. And those two messages separate us from both our intuition and our physical body. And when you're separated from those two things, the messes you can get yourself into are profound profound. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And this is, this is interesting because both of us experienced our sexual journey in two like different sides of the shame. Mine was very similar to yours. Yeah. Really? It was crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she even had, well, tell your experience when you were at church with that. And this is going to be familiar to anyone who's watched Jane the Virgin or they come from a religion, the flower. Yeah. When I was about Let's see, what grade was I in? Like ninth grade. So maybe I was 14 or like 14 years old. I went to church and they did the the rose exercise where they showed us that every time that you have sex with a man, to the women specifically, it, it was it felt targeted. Right. I wonder if they ever did anything like that to the men. No, they didn't. No. It's very interesting. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. Men have their own trauma. We can talk about that too. But like the women's trauma is different because it was, it was a gendered trauma, truly. Okay. Yeah, it is. I would love to hear you speak to the male trauma as well. And and, and of course we know that the LGBTQIA trauma is also very real. Oh yeah. Um, But yeah, so they showed us that every time that you have sex with somebody, you lose a pedal. And by the end it was this like nubbed rose. (laughs) And of course, my 14-year-old mind is like, I don't want to be a nubbed rose. So I wrote a full letter to my future husband, mm-hmm. how I was going to wait for him and, you know, sealed it. And- oh, my baby. I wanted to reach through the screen and hug you. God. Oh. And oh gosh, that drives me crazy too, because your sexuality is something that's always like flourishing and deepening and growing and expanding. If anything, the rose is like blossoming and blooming and becoming something so extraordinary, not the reverse. I recently saw a tweet of somebody who said, your purity is not, or your sexuality is not chewed up bubble gum. It's an everlasting gobstopper. (laughs) And that is true. That's really like it's such a fallacy and to make us think that we could be diminished in any way. Sex does not diminish you. That is total garbage. That's what's wild. And if you think about even what a rose is, it's a sexual organ. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's actually to attract, to attract pollinators and it's like wearing its sexuality on a sleeve. Like, and then pollination just brings like beauty and more flourishing. That's actually a really good example. <laughs> yeah, that was my experience and a lot of shame around having sexual impulses. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Even the desire is vilified. You're supposed to shut off every aspect of your sexuality. Like we have sexuality innately in us since the day we're born. Like 
when you're getting your diaper changed, you would feel all the good sensations that you do as a fully formed adult. And that's not to say sexuality is for children, but it is to say that we are sexual beings from the moment we arrive. We just are inherently. So to tell people that they have to shudder and silence and shut down every element of sexuality throughout their entire life until they wear a white dress, sign a contract, and hit the bedroom with someone is brainwashing. It's insane. It's crazy. And like if you read Linda K. Klein's book, Pure, anyone that's not familiar that's interested in the subject, please read it. And if you're a survivor of purity culture, please read it. I found it so validating to actually finally see my experience mirrored in other people's experience. Like so many of us that went through this before people started talking, like outwardly talking about this, we were all just thinking we were alone. Like I thought I was the only one suffering these traumas and the only one having these difficulties. And when I started God is Gray, um, there's a little spiritual antidote, but like when I started God is Gray, I was really nervous because it's the internet. (laughs) And I was like, this is going to be a disaster. People are going to hate me. And I really thought it was going to be literally like 95% of people screaming at me and hating me. And 5% of people were going to be like, oh my God, I've needed to hear this my whole life. Thank you. And I was doing it for that 5% because I was like, I know they're out there and I need to talk to them. The amazing thing is, is that was completely reversed. And the hate is really only like 1%. And furthermore, I had this like waking vision where I stepped out, I was like in this dense forest and I stepped out into this square pasture of green grass and I was alone for a second and I was looking around and it was like vulnerable and scary. And then in the distance, I saw a woman come out of the forest and wave at me. And then more and more people started coming out of the forest and waving at me. And I was awake for this. So I immediately interpreted it as God telling me, the moment you step out and say these things, you will not be alone. It will give other people courage to say the same things. And you will also see other people stepping out in the same way. And the first person I saw step out of that forest in the literal, not literal, the first person I saw step out of the forest was Linda K. Klein. That was the very first person that I was exposed to that I was like, oh my God someone else is saying it too. Wow. And and she's amazing. Her forward of her book is by Gloria Steinem. She's been on NPR. She does all of these like secular talk shows. And that to me is so important because it shows that the mainstream conversation is happening. And I think that's so important because you would think it's these like really niche group of people that were affected by purity culture. And they're like, hiding out in some Texas church somewhere. But the reality is that purity culture affected millions and millions of people. And that's just not in the United States. It's worldwide because missionaries went to Africa and different countries and spread the same toxicity all over the world. So we're talking millions of people affected by this. 100%. And that's what we were talking about earlier. Like we both experienced that shame, not just, it wasn't, it, we didn't directly get the we're we're Colombian, right? So Catholicism, yeah, <laughs> all throughout Latin America, <laughs> yeah. And it, even if you're not going to church on a regular basis, it is integrated into the very fiber of the culture. So even if we weren't hearing that, you know, this is because God said it, it is. It's just it, that's where it came from, though. Yeah, it came yeah. from religion. Um, 
Well, and you saying, say, like God said it, that's what's so profound about it. Like if you are going to have your mind controlled or be indoctrinated, it's not enough to be like, my pastor, who I really respect, said this. They're telling you the master of the universe. And for a lot of us, it was this like really beautiful, pure thing inside of us. When I explain how I got duped into all of this, it's like, well, Jesus resonated with me since I was a little child. I always felt spiritually attuned. When I was 12 years old, someone told me that pure love, that thing you encounter that you've felt your entire life cries when you masturbate. All of a sudden, I'm like, but I love God. All I want to do is honor God. I don't want to make him cry. I'm listening to you now. And that is so dangerous because people take their voice and say it's God's. And it's so easy to conflate God's voice and your pastor's voice, but you have to sift through and figure out what's right and what's wrong and not let them like, what's the opposite of validate? I'm like, devalidate isn't a word. <laughs> yeah, but like, don't let people, you know, that goes back to that thing of your heart is deceitful above all things. That's the way they discourage you from asking really profound, serious questions about what they're telling you. They're like, what you're saying and feeling is wrong. My just listen God. To that. Get out of touch the with your The heart is instincts. deceitful above all things. That's a Bible verse taken, plucked out of the Bible, taken completely out of context. And it's used as mind control, truly. And don't get me wrong. I'm not saying the leaders of churches are like sitting around in their homes plotting how to like manipulate people and take over the world. It's not like that. There's a lot of really, really good people but it is controlling people's minds at the end of the day. They're telling people not to trust themselves and especially not to trust your body. It's just something that has been passed on from generation to generation to generation. And that's what I think you're getting at, that none of them are coming from a bad place. They're all coming from a pure place where they're all good people. They all genuinely care. But the indoctrination of these narratives has been part of our world for generation after generation after generation until we find ourselves at this crossroads right now where our generation with all the access to information that we have and I think at a tipping point of emotional pain and mental health crisis is finally saying okay hold on something is just not working here you just gave me a chill. There is such a divine awakening. It's so wild. Mm -hmm. Like, And also watching the younger generation come in, like, for example, I, people might think this is crazy, but I am in my 30s. So the concept of non-binary, especially a feminine presenting person coming up to me and being like, I'm non-binary. I heard it like, I'm non-binary. And then, like, it was just so annoying to me. I was like, what are you talking about? You're just trying to like, add yourself to the conversation of people that are oppressed or you're trying to make yourself sound special. Like I had a lot of negative, you know, thoughts around that whole thing, but I only thought that in the privacy of my own life. Like I'm obviously not going to share that. Um, and I'm only sharing it now because I had this crazy interesting thought. I was realizing like God, the divine is neither male nor female. Like God is non-binary. And in that way, if we're all reflecting God, the closer we get to that, the more revelation we have as a society. And I believe we are progressing. And right now at this like rapid rate where people are starting to realize everything, all of our traumas, all of the ways that we've been lied to, all the ways that God has been misrepresented, all of this is coming to the surface. And 
it's spreading more love. It's spreading more understanding, which to me is divine. It's God. So I was like, maybe their divine revelation is that gender doesn't matter. That like, if God is non-binary, maybe we all are. Like these binaries don't make sense anyway in the kingdom of heaven and God. And I mean, that's tangential, but I'm just saying like, there is an awakening and I like listening to the people that are younger than me and realizing change is coming and it's here and it's beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you even have different airlines and different airports and even Facebook adding the other option of not having to choose a gender, not having to choose, like there's X now. Yeah. And like social justice warriors can be mind-numbingly annoying. Like I totally agree. Like it drives me crazy. But if you take that aside and take people's like anger and frustration out of the equation and you just look at it objectively, they're just, yeah, it's, it's, it could be more unifying. This is just people growing in their spirituality and their understanding of who we are as people. Mm -hmm. I think it, for, for me, this refers back to the pendulum concept that you're talking about because our world has spent so many generations creating narratives and conditioning around what it means to be each gender. We have reached another tipping point with that where we have become so confined by that. I don't even know if I can say that we're, because it's breaking right now. Mm -hmm. But we did become so confined by that that that's another thing that probably needs to happen before we can get to a place where we're trusting our instincts and our bodies and our hearts and our souls about what it means to be a woman, about what it means to be a man beyond all these definitions. Yeah. And that's where my my side of the sexual shame came from, right? So I didn't have the the part where I was ashamed for my sexuality. I felt that my value lied in my sexuality. So right. I you know, I mean, to be completely blatant, the first person I ever had sex with, we only had sex because I thought that I had to. Mm, to keep him happy. To, to I mean, it's kind of just so he would just stop talking. Like, because he's just so badly. <laughs> There's a tactic. <laughs> right, right. Like, I mean, his, his, and I was very young, very impressionable, very innocent and he you know not to saying that he did anything to me because that's just my journey and that's what I had you know it's what I went through but you know his his whole story was my friends are all gonna think I'm such a loser and like if you don't have sex with me like you're fucking up as my girlfriend and and <laughs> so whatever so I did but but that carried on with me for a while for a while I was not able to to drop that narrative for a while, you know, that until they experienced pleasure and I until, until I gave them sex, until they got what they wanted, that I, my value, like I was a, I was a woman who was like, I, I'm desirable and it's, I'm good. Yeah. I mean, as an aside too, that could be so damaging because men don't always want sex. So when they reject you sexually, like women have come on too strong to men sexually because they're like, getting so much validation in that experience in, in the reverse. But <laughs> I, what you're saying is breaking my heart so much because this is the problem with purity culture and it's the problem with the way the church has addressed sexuality for so long is that 
none of us were given actual tools, information, and education around sexuality. And we weren't given a sexual ethic that makes any sense. So we were all doing these things. Like if you do anything out of a shame or fear base, it is never going to, you know, that's not a foundation. You don't build things on that. That foundation will crumble and you'll be left with the fear and shame. And that's all you'll have left. So really the tragedy of what you're telling me is that our churches, this like religious oppression never gave us a true sexual ethic. Like if you don't feel it in your heart and your soul and your body, you're not going to follow it forever. Or if you do, again, it's going to come from this shame and fear place. And you're not going to be a whole person in your sexuality and you're not going to enjoy sex the way God intended it to be. No, which is like, my God. Yeah. Like how can you? And I, I had an undercurrent of shame and guilt around sex probably up until like maybe up until having a baby because there was something like validating about having a baby to be like, now I'm in a real relationship. Like now you guys can stop talking trash about me having sex, like, which is crazy, but it's true. It's just like this insidious thing that stays with you forever unless you really do the work to get rid of it. Mm-hmm. It's so excruciating. It is. It, it took me years to finally enjoy sex. I know. Crazy. And all. Yeah. And your story breaks my heart too, because it's like, so this is what happens to our daughters. You were told that God, whatever about your sexuality, and we're never given information. For example, you are valuable. Your body is beautiful. You not only don't have to do anything because someone pressures you into it, but like, actually you're allowed to really sit in your thoughts and think about it and like take in your heart for a second and assess your body and figure out whether or not it's a good decision for you. Like children very young should be given these tools and this information so they understand their autonomy, their worth, consent, like respect for others, respect for self so that when someone is in a bedroom scenario where the pressure is on, they already know how to react because they've already been told, they've already practiced it in like the boring environment of their school or of their church. And they're like, oh, I've been here in practice and now I'm going to like put it to practice. So for me, my story that I keep telling is that I was so compartmentalized in my sexuality and spirituality that I truly almost felt like every time I walked into a bedroom, I asked God to stay out of the room. I would like close the door. And it was weird because I wouldn't have ever said that I was actively thinking about it. But I realized looking back, it was something I was doing because I was like, well, God hates me for this. So we're going to leave that there. He can stand outside and then I'll leave the situation and he'll love me again. And, um, and so I was in New York one time and I just like met this bartender that was hot and I went home with him. So I'm at an unfamiliar apartment with a stranger and he started having like really aggressive sex with me. And something I want to like clarify is that this is not a bad person. He was not assaulting me. He was not violating me. He was just having what he thought was like a really sexy experience. And with a different person, with more trust, etc., I could totally be down for having a sexual experience like that. But I didn't know him and I didn't want to experience that with him and he was hurting me. So instead of saying, hey, that hurts or I don't want to have sex like this with you, 
I just floated above my body. And this is the only time I've ever had an out-of-body experience. And I just watched it. And I was like, well, this is what you get. You were sinning. You're not having sex in, in marriage. You don't know this person. You're being a slut. You're being a Jezebel. Like, that's what you get. And that message... I have so much compassion for that girl, myself, and any other woman that's been in that situation, your story, including Valentina, which is that when we're not educated and we're not feeling our own bodies and spirits and hearts and sexual situations, we don't know that we're worthy enough to speak up. Because if you lost your purity, if you're worthless in your sexuality, then you're not worth saying you're hurting me or stop, or I don't want to be here. Or even though we started, I don't actually want to be here anymore. And you can hear that in your secular class from your sex ed teacher, but it doesn't mean anything when you believe that you deserve what's happening to you. Yeah. It's, it's making these decisions of, of our sexuality based on shame and fear basically puts us in a situation where we're putting our head in the sand. Yeah. But, yeah. This makes me think of, I have some friends in the LGBT, LGBT community and not all of them, but a few of them have experienced and currently experience deep, a deep amount of shame where uh-huh. they are afraid that they are still going to hell, that yeah. they have visions of themselves going to hell because they are gay and having sex. And that to me is just, I feel so much for that. I want to hear what you you have to say about, because you've done a lot of videos touching on the LGBTQ community and sex. I'm like, what would you say to those people who are currently dealing with that? I mean, first of all, I'm just like heartbroken every time I think about this and I feel very passionate about it. And I will say that the doctrine of anti-LGBTQ rhetoric never resonated with me ever. It always like hit me and made me, it just felt wrong. And in any other situation in my entire life, I was always taught to trust my instincts. It's like if, if someone, if you're walking somewhere and a dark alley appears, you instinctually know what to do. And everyone in your life, your parents, every, your pastor would even say, if you feel that, run. If someone doesn't feel right, run. And yet in our spiritual life and in our sexuality, we've been told, hey, we know the answer. And even if you feel that, and it is that extreme, like if there's any LGBTQ people listening that are in this pain, like think about it. Every time I heard that doctrine, it felt like an assault and it felt downright wrong to the core of my soul. And the only reason I was in denial of it is because I kept being told in evangelical church that I'm not allowed to question. And they can pull out these six Bible verses out of context and prove to me that it's a sin. And I'm just supposed to swallow that and keep moving. And it wasn't until like 11 years into my journey after hearing this, that I was sitting, basically Prop 8 came to California, which was us determining whether or not gay people are allowed to get married. And um, I can't believe it was that recent in California, by the way. It's just like crazy to me. But at the time, I was going to an evangelical church and on the pulpit, they told us that we had to vote against gay marriage. And the crazy thing is, and this wouldn't be true of every church, but in my church, it was about money because our, 
our pastor was talking about how if churches, if we swing to democratic and liberal, that churches will lose their funding or they'll um, lose their tax exempt status. So he's like, it's very important to vote in this way. And then also LGBTQ is a sin and we can't support this, blah, blah, blah. But looking back, it was very money motivated in this particular church. And, um, but then other people say, no, it's because the Bible says so. So my rebuttal to that is, First of all, I have a really beautiful interview with this theologian named Pete Enns, and he really talks about how the Bible is this ancient and ambiguous text, and to take things out of context, like he just really breaks it down and shows you how absurd it is to actually think that we know God's thoughts on something like that based on the text that we've been given. It's just not there, and it's debunked many times. Kevin Garcia, he just wrote a book called Bad Theology Kills. Um, unchanged is like there are so many resources that you can find now if you theologically need to try to talk yourself out of how garbage that theology is and not based in God. But we're talking so much about intuitive and embody being intuitive and embodiment, etc. That I would also say just think about your intuition on it. If you can try to just have a bird's eye view on it for one second. Like, or think about a friend of yours that is doing something that's supposedly a sin. Like, do you think they're going to hell? How does that feel when it strikes you? And again, the church will attack you back and say, your feelings are invalid. Don't trust your feelings. You have to trust the, the Bible. So then swing back around to these books that are debunking these theories from the Bible. You can have a Bible-based doctrine that is pro-LGBTQ. And Jesus loves you, I promise. God loves you. Like, and not only that, but God made you in his image. He says that you were made in the image of God just as you are with your sexuality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Re- referring to like friends that we both know that struggle with this, it's it, people are put almost in the position of I'm either going to follow the intuition of my sexuality and what my body's asking me for, or I have to leave my whole culture and religion and roots behind. I'm not, they can't coexist. Well, sometimes they can, you know, like a lot of LGBTQ people will write me and especially like teenagers, I always clarify how old they are. Cause I'm like not trying to tell a 16 year old to run away from home. But if you are in an environment, it is downright abusive to tell people that they need to change their sexuality. It just is what it is. And you could ask, any therapist, anyone that's like clinically studied the effects of it, and also just look at the effects of it. It creates suicidal ideation or suicide. So obviously this is not working and it is incredibly detrimental and it is downright abusive to tell someone they're wrong for being gay. And I know a church would push back on me on that, but I'm just like, no, look at the fruit, look at what it's done. It's so apparent to me. So if you are in an abusive situation like that, even if you hesitate to call it abusive, you are allowed to leave. You know, I hear so many people talking about fighting with their family at like the Thanksgiving table and they have all this anxiety about going home for Thanksgiving and they'll buy a plane ticket and fly somewhere to put themselves through that hell. And I'm like, why don't you stay home? Like, why don't you either create boundaries and say, you all need to look me in the eye and respect me in the following ways. And this is an off topic thing. We are never discussing it again. 
I am who I am. I'm not going to change. And you can't make me feel bad about it. And then all your family falls in line and is like, oh, we're sorry. (laughs) We'll respect you. Then go to Thanksgiving. But if not, stop putting yourself through that. And if you're in a church that's telling you you're wrong, run. Because especially nowadays, there are so many churches that will accept you as you are. You don't have to tolerate that anymore. And here's the thing. All of these doctrines the intersection between mental health and all of this is really how they're rooted in teaching us and, and conditioning us from a place of fear and shame. Mm-hmm. Both of those things are at the root cause of anxiety and depression. Yeah, I'm sure. Like, yeah, I'm sure. That's what it is. I mean, even if you think about what shame is, shame is one of the most debilitating emotions that we can experience because it's a socially experienced emotion. Shame only exists in a social context, right? And because we are social animals for the majority of human history, when we didn't live in these societies that are more modernized, it was very, very evident that we needed our tribe for our survival. So the moment you start to feel an emotion like shame where you're not good enough or what you're experiencing is not allowed, that the part of your brain that is wired for connection feels immediately threatened. And what's threatened is psychologically is your survival. So you literally go into a state of fight or flight, probably perpetually if you're living in that environment, that's how anxiety disorders start forming. And then if you're in an anxiety type situation long enough, your body starts getting depressed because it can't have those hormones and that cortisol running through your system at all times. And so a lot of times, I mean, and we, part of the mission of Pretty Mental is to challenge the medicalization of normal human suffering where we will tell people, oh, you just have a hormonal imbalance, right? Or, and, and you might, you might. But, or um, and your neurotransmitters are out of whack and they might, but to take that completely out of context and not look at the narrative and what we are doing to our social brains, being the social animals that we are, is really ignorant, is really ignorant. Yeah. You're reminding me too, you know, the church rhetoric and... <laughs> There's like this church, Bethel, for example. There's like the really powerful church. I really do not like them and what they're teaching at all. And they're always harping on LGBTQ and trans issues in in the worst way. And one thing I've heard from their pulpit multiple times is, you know, people, LGBTQ people are more promiscuous. They drink more. They do drugs more. They suffer from suicidal ideation more often because they're gay and it's causing them so much pain. And I'm like, I can't believe how you, the oppressor, you, the person causing all of this pain has managed to spin that around and pretend it's the other way. Like chicken or the egg, you came first, dude. You are the one. You are the reason they are suffering in this way. Like, of course. Are you kidding me? You're telling people there's a fundamental, deep, deep flaw in them. And you brought it a step further by being like their entire social structure and everyone they love and care about is in threat if they don't just fall in line to what they're supposed to be. And it's impossible because they were born otherwise. You can't force yourself to be something you're not. And it's not the same as pedophilia and the other like comparisons that they make. Like consensual sex is consensual across the board. And like they always make that leap as well. 
And again, that just makes me want to throw out my middle fingers at them all the way because I'm like, these are not parallel issues. Non-consensual sex has nothing to do with what you're talking about at all. And like, because they'll be like, oh, well, a pedophile is born a pedophile. I'm like, no, that's a sexual disorder. Like having non-consensual sex with people is not a sexual orientation. I'm curious about what you have to say about the uh, men's sexual shame. Oh, yeah. I love men. My heart goes out for men so hard. And I am so excited again that we're having this huge cultural shift because women to me are still the loudest voices and I'm so proud of all of us. But I think it's finally giving permission to men to be emotional beings, to cry, to like care about things in a way that's brand new to probably so many people. Like how many men are coming out as bisexual or trans that are in their like 60s, 50s, 70s, you know, because they're watching the younger people come into themselves and lead the way. That's incredible. So the damage that I've seen with the men is just as profound as the woman. And again, it was like a gendered thing. They didn't get the you're worthless if you have sex. But I have noticed there is a huge, huge problem with masturbation. And they always used to separate us in these conversations. Um, so I don't actually know what the men were told about masturbation, but I know the emails that I get and the rage that I get. I did one video on why masturbation isn't a sin and there are men screaming at me in the comment section and men email me about it all the time. And I was like, this is so interesting. Like women aren't up in arms about this. Why? And I think it's because we were taught that our values in sex, but men were taught that they are irrepressible sexual beasts. And if they want to be a good Christian, if they want to be a good man, they have to fight that their entire lives. To tell a man you're not allowed to masturbate, <laughs> I mean, you're the psychologist. Like, can you please tell me what you think that does to someone's psyche? Like, to actually repress. And don't get me wrong, like, women have desires, and masturbation is incredibly healthy and important for us as well. But, like, to tell men you're going to go to hell for touching yourself when really it's this beautiful oxytocin release that helps you relax, that helps you manage your sexuality, that helps you, like, move through life as a functioning human being. Men were robbed of that. And, and, the effect is, is again, profound. And also being told that they're, they need to be the leader of everything. They need to lead their relationships. They're the strong one. They have to, their wives have to submit to them. So it's like they're put in this position of authority where they're supposed to believe that they're in charge of everything. I, I read recently that like, I forget which age range it is exactly, but middle-aged white men are the highest statistical number of suicides. And that I can't say I've like done a research study on it or anything, but to me and just my logical brain, I'm like, well, that makes sense. They're not allowed to cry. They're not allowed to emote. They're not allowed to ask questions about the deepest parts of themselves. They don't have communion like women do. Like the three of us talking here is so edifying for all of us and helps us heal of each other's traumas. Whereas men are just supposed to suffer in silence. Like again, I'm in my thirties. So I've seen 
guy friends cry about a breakup, like a breakup of someone they were with for three years and all their male friends are patting them on the back. And if a tear trickles, they're like, okay, okay, okay. Let's, let's listen to some music. Like it's all been shoved down for so long. And that included their sexuality. And in purity culture, a lot of them suffer um, ED, erectile dysfunction, because sex is such a source of shame. And if you've managed to repress it for that long, again, your body has that response. And they can't even get it up for the woman that they love, that they've been saving themselves for their whole life. It just goes right back to shame. Yeah. And do you know, like, of all the things in the Bible, fear is spoken against the most times. It's like over 90 times or something. God is constantly like, fear not, don't fear, don't be afraid. I'm with you, don't be afraid. And yet the church has built itself on fear and shame and fear are like cousins. It's the same thing. Mm -hmm. It's like the one commandment that seems very important to God. Yeah. Well, yeah, that, that's so fascinating. I didn't know that. And they definitely both put us into a state of psychological survival so yeah our, our brains and our bodies are basically saying i'm, I'm going to die i'm i'm just going to die right? yeah I, that, I that reminds me too like i i'm sure you could speak to this much better than i can but i love learning more about embodiment and one of my greatest teachers of that right now is my friend jamie lee finch she wrote this book called you are your own and we've only had two podcast conversations. Please, everyone go listen to them because they're really beautiful. And I learned so much. And one of them is just, um, she really advocates calling your body her or he or whatever you want, but not it. Because mm, I love that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I've thought about that too. Like, <laughs> totally, like, total side note. Like, I, I hate the way animals are treated. And it really struck me one day. I was like, why do we call animals it? They're actually he's and she's. Who the hell decided we're calling them it? And I was like, oh, that's because we wanted to have our power over them. We wanted to diminish them in some way. We wanted them to be lesser. So we called them it. And even like gender wise, there's no English word for male and female. God is represented as both in the Bible. Elohim is masculine and feminine, neither. We don't have that in English. So we just gave God a he. But if you think about it, like God is like neither masculine or feminine, but I've never ever felt comfortable calling him it. I don't like calling him him. I've started calling them they <laughs> because that's more accurate really. That just goes to show like it is inherently like a disparaging word. Like it sounds like you're disrespecting something. So that's why that really resonates with me to not call your body it. So then Jamie talks about like, okay, so you speak to her, you check in with her, you ask her how she's doing. Wow. And that, yeah. is, that is enlightening to me. Just something I'm, that simple. Yeah. I'm glad. And I really, I think that's so important for anyone that is a survivor of religion in any way, because again, we were taught to vilify our bodies, that we can't trust them, that they're disgusting, that they're leading us astray. And in reality, my lack of embodiment, my willingness to call my body an it 
is the reason I ended up in that situation with that guy in New York, is the reason that you ended up having sex before you were ready. Because we weren't taught to check in with our bodies to honor her as she deserves. And if you do, all of a sudden, everything falls into place. I think people are so terrified of me suggesting that we don't have a rule-oriented sexual ethic in Christianity. But I think throwing out all the rules is crucial because when you have no rules, it doesn't mean you're a ruleless person. It actually means you're suddenly assessing what's genuinely right and wrong. Now I'm making decisions from a genuine place deep inside of myself because I'm learning I've learned, I would say, to trust myself. I know when I'm in a sexual situation that is dangerous or doesn't feel good. And I also know that my body, she deserves for me to speak out for her if she's in a bad situation. And I feel the same way about church. Uh, like going back to your question of LGBTQ people, whether or not they should leave the environment they're in. What is your body saying to you when you're around those people, when you're at that church? For me, I haven't attended church in a long time and I was trying for a while, but every time I walked into a church, I got nauseous and my body would start shaking mm. and I made a joke of it. I was like, Brenda, you're being so lame. Like you're over this. You know what you believe now. These people can't hurt you. Da, da, da. And it wasn't until I talked to Jamie that I was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry, body. I'm so sorry. You were trying to tell me. I was, it makes me want to cry actually. Like you were trying to tell me you have been hurt. This is a dangerous place for you. Remember what has happened to you because of spaces like this, because of people like this. And I hesitate to say people like this, people indoctrinated by these ideas and poisoning you with those ideas, good people, but dangerous ideas. And my body was like, run, you're not safe here. And I ignored her week after week after week until I finally listened, but I didn't know I was listening to my body. I just knew I couldn't take it anymore. That's so powerful. Man, this whole journey of healing really is just about releasing all these doctrines and conditionings and that have been passed on from generation to generation and returning to our bodies and our instincts and checking in and self-compassion. Yeah. And you guys said you're Colombian? Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful family, by the way. Lord, I want to see your brother. I probably think he's so hot. <laughs> <laughs> We're trying to have him on the podcast. <laughs> Private days. man. But um, so I just talked to a wonderful woman, Joe Lumen, about decolonization, decolonizing our faith. Mm-hmm. And that was so eye-opening for me as a white girl because – and it was a really powerful conversation. She slapped me across the face – when I realized that I had been singing this word in my non-denominational churches, this song about slavery, how we were once slaves and now we're free, meaning we were slaves to sin and now we're free. I realized she was like, "Um, that was a song that slaves sung, actual slaves. And I was like, oh my God. Now fast forward and some white girl in New Jersey in her middle-class home with her family is raising her hands to God and saying, I was once a slave and now I'm free with no context, with no honor to the roots of that song and what that suffering actually was. All of that said, like purity culture also indoctrinated and, and whitewashed and made puritanical sexuality that other cultures and civilizations didn't have a problem with. Like 
For example, also Native Americans were presented to me in school when I was young as, um, what word am I looking for? Like not civilized, like um, savages. savages, Thank you. They were presented like savages and we were presented as the saviors that helped them learn what life is really about and help them be more civilized in their society. Meanwhile, the Mayans were like the most advanced society that ever was. And they didn't hold these puritanical ideas. And the Native American ideals were so much more aligned with the way I see true Christianity. They were honoring the earth. They knew how to honor their bodies, their elders, their children. They didn't wear a lot of clothes and no one gave a damn because your body is not just a sexual thing. It's also your body, your vessel that you're carrying through the world. We ruined that culture. I mean, we really ruined that culture and it's devastating what we did to it and replaced it with this thing that has been, I mean, this to me is just like, if you want to talk about Satan or the devil or evil, this is the true evil that I see. The way we've just robbed people that understood, they understood it. Yes. This is just taking my mind to, we're going to be releasing an interview soon that we had with a lady who lived with this tribe in Colombia, the Kogi, or the- She cohabited. She cohabitated with a few different tribes. Yeah. And the Andes. Yeah. And it's- they. I mean, the Sierra Nevada, excuse me. And they subscribe to the same little clothes, free sexuality, and they are one of the longest living- Yeah. Pre-Columbian civilizations that's still around. Yeah. And, and they're so peaceful and it yeah. works, you know? Yeah. They yeah. They're like over a hundred healthy. They're, they're not in a state of stress. They're, it's just, they're following their instincts, listening <laughs> to the land, Amazing. To their bodies. And because it's not all about property, women don't have to be seen as property either. Our wombs don't have to be seen as property. And all the children belong to all the people. I, there, I mean, there's so many. Um, the book, what is this book? Uh, Sex at Dawn. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah. I keep wanting to read that. Okay. Such a good book. And he does an anthropological overview of so many cultures around the world that don't ascribe to this indoctrination of women as territory. Mm. We, yeah. So even where, you know, having multiple fathers is actually a benefit <laughs> because it, it, it ensures the survival of the child. So, I mean, ag- agriculture and the development of our civilization, yeah. that hand in hand with religion, I think, is what's brought us to this point. Yeah. I mean, I completely agree. Um, thinking of another point that Joe brought up is about the Shakira J-Lo like Christian gate 2020, like everyone lost their minds over how grotesque and immoral that was. And she saw it. Well, it was interesting because she is outright Christian on her Instagram. So I, I don't know the full story, but I guess she put up a post in support what uh, Joe Lumen, the woman who talks about decolonizing faith. Um, So she, I think put up a post about her support of it and saying that it was like colonizing to have any disparaging comments about it. And people push back and they're like, but you're Christian. Like it was immodest and it was clearly like overtly sexual. And she was like, no, if in their, like from their roots, if you trace it back, 
like the shaking of your body, of showing the voluptuousness of your ass, like of uh, the way that they were expressing themselves is actually truer to the roots of the tribes and the places that non-white people have come from. And again, those weren't inherently sexual situations. Like they were just expressing themselves. They didn't have this like colonized version of sex where everything that they do, every way they move their body is sexual. It just was. It's like a self-expression, not to draw in men. You know, it was just self-expression. That's it. And what else did she say? She brought up um, this chief who I guess all these Puritans came to America and they were about to burn him at the stake. And they were like, if you don't repent now and accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you won't be in heaven. And there's not a direct quote, but the the chief said, essentially, you're saying you're going to heaven? Then I don't want to be there. Like, you guys are heaven. I would rather die than be there. Mm. That is what I feel like this colonization of our faith is. And our bodies. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's powerful. Because even with that whole Shakira J Lo performance and and people being so outraged by it, it's 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 uh, once again calling our bodies, uh, seeing our bodies as these impure its that yeah. can't be expressed. And that's what I love about ecstatic dance, which mm. is getting more and more popular in like the spiritual wellness communities. Is that you can go into this room and for an hour, for however long, you just move your body on, express it in whatever way you want it, and it's not seen as sexual. Mm. It's just I love that. I never heard about. Yeah, yeah. Oh, dance. It's I'm just, sure they're all over uh, LA. Uh huh. It's very liberating. <laughs> uh-huh. It's very liberating. Everybody just moves however they their body wants to be moved. So it's, it becomes a moving meditation. Mm-hmm. Nothing oh, special about it. Yeah. Yeah. You I love that. Yeah. The only place I've ever felt protected in in that expression was at Bergheim, this like very hedonistic nightclub in Berlin. <laughs> um, but they police everyone there really hard, and the door guy is really strict, and they just make sure like it's it's just at a standard where we know we're not going to disrespect each other. We know we're not going to do anything non-consensual or harmful to other people. And I never felt so free because I realized no man was going to come up to me because I was moving my body in a certain way. I was actually, and I never felt so emancipated. And it was actually that night that I really realized I wanted a family and I wanted true love. And I like invited all that to myself. And it was in this hedonistic environment. There's a basement where people were just like banging in public and like, and I had one of the most ecstatic, beautiful experiences of my life on that dance floor. Yeah. That's ecstatic dance. That's what you were doing. Beautiful. You're just moving your body in whatever way your body was asking to be moved. Mm Mm-hmm. It was amazing. And I haven't experienced it since, so I'll have to check it out. Yeah, that's, that is all over where you are. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think we're getting close to closing yeah, time. We are getting close to closing time. Do you- so, well, I wanted to, something that came up for me was this quote by Walt Whitman uh, in Leaves of the Grass. It's very famous. I'm sure you guys might have heard it, but this is, just feels like the theme of this whole conversation. And so he said, re-examine all you have been told in school or church or in any book and dis- dismiss whatever insults your own soul. Oh, mm-hmm. I've never heard that. That just That's beautiful. That <gasps> in your very flesh shall be a great poem and have the richest fluency, not only in its words, but in the silent lines of its lips and face and between the lashes of your eyes and in every motion and joint of your body. 
Oh my God. That is gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Isn't that wow. beautiful? Mm-hmm. I think that's what this whole healing journey is. Mm-hmm. Shedding everything that was given to us yeah. that we don't need. It doesn't belong yeah. to us. What is not and We know. Yeah. All, all three of us know. And, and you know, you know. Mm-hmm. Like at a certain point, you just have to be like, okay, I'm just going to know that I know because mm-hmm. I'm done with this shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, I'm not dancing this fear dance with you guys any longer. Mm-hmm. No, no. This is where it stops. Mm-hmm. Before we end it, we always ask our guests, what does mental health mean to you? Or what is it for you? Like, how do I maintain it? Or like, what's your definition? It, yeah. Like how you maintain it or just when you when you feel... I have to say, like, I I feel like a lot of the conversations I lead, I feel separate from. Like, I'm obviously an ally uh, for LGBTQ people, but I also, sometimes I feel weird because I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm straight. Like, I'm sorry. I don't know what I'm doing. But, um, and I sort of feel that way about mental health because, you know, I can't say that I've suffered the way other people have. On the other hand, I would say that I went through this like breakup that I I didn't I don't I still don't even know why it was so traumatizing to me, but I was devastated like for probably 9 months or so. And it was just this like looming underlying terrible terrible feeling. And I don't even remember how I got out of it. It was just like lifted at a certain point. So I don't know. Sometimes I'm like, maybe I have, maybe I haven't really experienced what other people have. But that said, when it's not clinical and it's just something that I'm going through, I don't know. This is a hard question. So let me, you know, let me, one of the things that we're trying to do with mental health is it's become this phrase of it belongs in the medical community. And we are approaching this entire podcast platform conversation with mental health is we're normalizing being human. It's like physical health. Right. right? Or emotional health, spiritual health. So well, I don't want to explain it more and then give my answer. (laughs) I mean, and, and I feel like you've, people are scared to speak on mental health because it's almost like the medical community has colonized it. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Interesting. No, this is this is really interesting conversation right here because it's funny. While I was talking, I started slowing down talking because I was like, "How can you say you've never suffered mental health if you could barely get out of bed for nine months, but you still consider yourself someone that never suffered from it because I didn't get a diagnosis?" Yeah, yeah, that's weird. Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> I almost want to start getting people to equate mental health with. I mean, wellness, human. just being human, and human, right? And like, when do you feel, and, and I feel like you already answered it without even realizing For it, sure. which is yeah. when your body, mind, and soul are in alignment, you said something along those lines. Yeah, 100%. But I also would say like, I don't know how to get there sometimes. Like I, my mom says that I reside in high highs and low lows and nothing in between. And that's... <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. And it's, it's so true. And I, okay. My answer is that I'm patient with myself and I allow myself to feel what I'm feeling because the more anxiety I feel, 
again, in church, I didn't feel permission to feel certain emotions. You're supposed to be like showing everyone how happy you are to be a Christian. And that causes so much anxiety because you're like, well, guess what? I'm not happy right now. Or, you know, when I was going through a divorce, I was devastated, but I still felt that pressure. Like the Christian church never gave me permission to actually go through the mourning process. Like I had to, because I had to just like pray until I felt better. And my friend gave me this Buddhist book, which was the first time I ever realized that other religions aren't evil, that I can actually learn something from other people's faith practices. But she gave me this book about this monk and he talked about mourning and sadness. And it was incredible because it gave me permission for the first time in my life. I was like, oh my God, I'm allowed to feel this. So I think that everyone just needs to realize that things need to move through you. They need to move through your body, through your spirit. And if you don't let them move, they stagnate and they fester and they poison you. So just feel it. Like, And a lot of Christians too will think anger is a sinful emotion or something. You can't project that. First of all, Jesus threw over a bunch of tables when he got mad. So apparently anger is okay. And second of all, that's a really destructive emotion to keep inside of you. And it's not going to go anywhere. You have to move it out of you, which is why ecstatic dance makes so much sense to me too. You're making a physical movement to get it out of you. So the answer is to be patient. When I wake up and I'm in a really sad mood and I'm positive that God is great is going to fail and I'm just going to die alone, <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, oh, great. Good morning. One of those days. Great. Like, and then I just know that it will get better. And then in the nine month process, that was the longest time I felt that way. And I, I was patient with myself in those nine months and I couldn't believe how long it was taking. It was horrible. And then it passed and then I felt better. So I know not everyone has that experience, especially if it's a clinical diagnosis, but, um, yeah, patience. You no, know, it's funny. Like everything you just described is so much of what I teach my clients. <laughs> really? So, you yeah. know, everyone, everything we say in you our know posts. a lot more about mental health. It's just like, like the medical community, I guess you could say has colonized our mental health yeah. because even <clears throat> saying like, okay, I, maybe with somebody that has a clinical diagnosis and it's like mental health is so much greater than a diagnosis. Right? And we all experience the ups and downs and, and sometimes it is a lot more pervasive, but it is in that allowing and in that patience that so much of the work is done in moving your body and honoring your truth and speaking your boundaries, basically in releasing so much of the conditioning that has been passed on to you that I basically, I, I explained earlier to you guys how that puts us into states of mental unwellness. Yeah. And, and, physical. and physical because they're completely that can lead to like cancer completely mm -hmm. so i through this podcast and i'm, I'm really glad we just had that conversation mm -hmm. when i really empower people to take ownership of their own definition of mental health and and it's not just something that the medical community owns and to not shy away from using those words because for a long time and especially we see it in specific cultures and also with men in particular, it's they're afraid to embrace their emotions because if they say that they have a mental health or if they have their emotions, <laughs> they're all of a sudden seen as weak or broken or something's off. Where in reality, yeah. 
we're human. You're supposed to feel a wide range of emotions. You're not supposed to keep them in. And yeah. that's when you start breaking down. Well, mm-hmm. conversation. Let's talk about it. I love yeah. that. Yeah. Very healing for men too, I imagine. My God. Mm-hmm. And yeah. for women. Because as long as men, our, our men are in that state of repression, they're going to try to repress us. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> it's this dance that we're <laughs> all ready to – we're just all just ready to sign off from mm-hmm. and unsubscribe because it's, it's no longer A- cool. Amen. Yeah. Well, thank okay. you so much for thank you for making time for us amongst God is Gray and Baby Valentine. <laughs> I wish I could see him. They named him after Valentina. That's, That's so cool. I love it. I mean, when I saw your baby shower invitation and I saw Baby Valentine, I was like, I first saw Valentina because that's just where my eyes saw. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> no. No, I love that no. name. It's beautiful. Do you know the story of St. Valentine? She must. I, yeah. I do yeah. not. I know. Oh. <laughs> okay. Somehow I, I had a feeling. I don't know why. But do you? Yeah, randomly. Not a lot about it, but I know like the main overviews is that St. Valentine was basically a priest. He was in the church. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he I was – and he was condemned or exiled because he was marrying people outside of the church who the church was saying that he couldn't, that, that they couldn't be allowed to be together. That's just like a broad synopsis. But so it's like perfect. Oh my God. That's crazy. Cause that's another thing. Like you were talking about like a divine download, like that name came to us, I would say immediately. Like, I think I said it out loud and David was just like, great. And we were like, that's his name. And wow. that's beautiful. And also, too, wow. his last name's Guerrero, which means warrior. So he's a love warrior. Oh, oh my. God. I just got goosebumps. <laughs> what? What? Yeah. You need to look up St. Valentine. No, I know. That I baby do. is carrying some wow. serious power. That is beautiful. That's amazing. You've got a, um, a divine creature on your hands, Brenda. <laughs> <laughs> And now he's yelling. <laughs> okay. All right, we'll well, let thank mom you go. so much. Are you going to? It was so, so good, good to, to see you and, and to meet you. you. Yeah, oh. so nice to meet you too. Let's catch up in private too. Yeah, yeah I would love <laughs> that. I, I want to hear, yeah, the latest. Uh-huh. We would definitely love <laughs> All, All right. Bye, ladies. Bye. Bye.